from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. I contain multitudes, famously proclaimed the celebrated Walt Whitman, a poetic truth seldom acknowledged by most people. Contrary to conventional wisdom, right below the surface, each and every one of us is a rich and complex aggregate of identities, national, ethnic, religious, gender, sexual, and more. And yet conventional wisdom, more often than none, rejects this multiplicity and instead attempts to dictate a simplistic, flattened, and antagonistic group consciousness that can be manipulated and weaponized in the service of various socio-political agendas. Colonialism has always sought to divide in order to conquer, and unfortunately, over the centuries, it has been largely successful. To wit, the Zionist notion that Jews and Arabs are somehow antithetical, that one can be Jewish and American, Jewish and French, even Jewish and Ethiopian, but never Jewish and Arab, as if somehow the two were incompatible. In his acclaimed new book, when We Were Arabs, Los Angeles-born journalist and author Masoud Hayoun recounts one North African family's epic journey step-by-step step from Tunisia all the way to California after it was senselessly uprooted from its ancestral lands and catapulted into a cold new world by two successive waves of European colonialism. He spoke with Khalil Bendit. Masoud Hayoun, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Mr. Khalil Bendit. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Masoud, uh, first, I want to congratulate you on a fascinating book that you've titled When We Were Arab. It provides a granular and nuanced account of what a North African Arab Jewish family has been through the identity, what that identity can mean for one specific family. And you're careful throughout the book to remind uh, the reader that there are many possible such identities in the rich kaleidoscope of the Maghreb's multiple identities and the North African Jewish experience. Quickly, a first question. How did you end up with such a beautiful Arab first name when the whole colonial and modern thing for many Jews have been to de-Arabize. After all, even your great teacher of Arabness, your grandfather, had a European name, Oscar. Mm -hmm. Misaud was a name from our family, and that it's just as simple as that. I think that there are many people, the majority of the people in our community have Western first names. Many of them have Europeanized their last names. That definitely is the case in parts of my family, but ultimately, in terms of how my grandparents addressed me, it was always more important to keep our legacy alive. So I, I think over the course of the book, something that I address is the way that they held on to Arabness even after several kind of displacements westward. And I make it sound like it's a conversation that we were having between the two of us that they came back to Arabness. But that wasn't the case. It was very much that they impressed on me and held tight to their own identity and their own Arabness, even at moments when they were made to question it. So if anything, it's a, a tribute to the fact that who, who we were and the realities for our ancestors were so ironclad that even 
despite kind of trends or customs to the contrary, we did hold tight to who we were. And that's evident not just in the name that they called me, but in so much of how I was raised and, and hopefully the kind of environment that people read in the book. The reason that surprised me as an Algerian who grew up in Algeria is that I've had experiences. One time I went with my mother to visit the grave of her father who passed away a long time ago in the Muslim cemetery in Setif, which is in eastern Algeria where my family comes from. And right next to the Muslim cemetery was the Jewish cemetery. So I, I was curious, I wanted to go and look because that's something I've missed in my development. My parents were friends and, and neighbors with Jewish Algerians, but I, I, it never really happened to me because this was post-independence. Most Jews had left, unfortunately. So I go to, into the, the Jewish part of the cemetery, which is sort of a twin of the Muslim cemetery, and I read some of the names on the gravestones and those who had died in the 19th century were all Arabic first names. Masoud, Zulikha, not uh, Muslim names, but Arab names. Yes. And then around the turn of the century, I see Pauline, Claudette, Yvette. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I said, what happened to us here? Exactly. My God, this is sad for me as, you know, as somebody who grew up in that us versus them, natives versus the conquerors world. It was sad to see my Jewish brethren kind of turn coats and say, oh no, now we're going to sound French. And to see the opposite movement where somebody like yourself, your generation would be named again, an Arab name. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's rare. The politics of names, even into the 20th century, is so fascinating among Jewish Arabs. And I discuss this a little bit in the book, a bit of a tendency for men in our community to have names that are either both Arabic and Hebrew or Hebrew and French that can move between the two. Mm. And more frequently, it's women within our community that I'm finding, even looking at our own uh, family tree, who have Arabic names, who are allowed to have names that hold to our culture that are a little bit more fanciful than others. Like, for example, there are a lot of people uh, who I find in our family tree and other family trees who are named not just Arabic names, but very fanciful kind of Arabic names like Sultana, Rosala. And Aziza, very common. I have a great aunt, Aziza. Yes, yeah, so the politics of names are very interesting. And as you say, you can see in people's families' trees a, a very particular moment in our Jewish-Arab uh, North African legacy where people start to shift their identities away from home, essentially. And like other communities throughout the Arab world, not just Jewish communities, Christian communities, other minority communities, you begin to see people giving their children French or Western first names, almost as a, a marker of the point in time when they de-Arabized. Yes. yes. So what happened in Algeria, for example, is 1870, the Algerian Jews, after 40 years almost of French occupation, had been decreed French citizens as opposed to the rest of, of the natives. And that kind of started that separation from their non-Jewish brethren in Algeria. 
your book, When We Were Arab, is so quotable throughout that I hope you won't mind if I keep quoting and quoting, even though you're right there, right there in front of me. The first it's quote, real. <laughs> the first quote I'd like to use is, quote, the broad stroke dualism of the Jew and Arab continues to terrorize and to kill and to disfigure. What did you mean by that? Specifically Palestine, obviously. I think that um, I, I don't particularly agree with people when they say that this is a, a book about Palestine. It is first and foremost a book that comes out of North Africa, transplanting it away from its roots and its intentions in North Africa as a capital of the international Arab experience as it exists today is a Zionist and a fundamentally misguided enterprise. That said, I've spoken about this book at Palestine Rights with my sister Susan Abulhawa and a, a lot of other uh, Palestinian and Palestinian American writers. This book has been very much appreciated, uh, thankfully, by my Palestinian comrades. And still, it's important to underline that the Palestinian story can only be told by the Palestinian people and that ultimately I, as a non-Palestinian, have nothing particularly useful to say to what Palestinian liberation will look like in the future. So I do appreciate this opportunity to say that quotes like that, of course, are about Palestine and seek to lend support to the ongoing movements for Palestinian liberation. And yet it is important to note that the Palestinian story can only be written by Palestinian people and the people who are incubating the future of a free Palestine abroad. So I really do appreciate on uh, many accounts that appreciate, I mean, several groups that advocate for Palestine, for example, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace hosted a Hanukkah party for when we were Arabs, where we did discuss a lot about Palestine. Palestine as the movement for a free Palestine is very much a center of the global movement for Arab liberation. This book is about Arab liberation because as an Arab American person, it is for me to discuss Arab liberation and to lend support to the movement for Palestinian liberation. And yet it is important to say that anything that I say for Palestine will never be as important as what the many brilliant intellectuals in favor of a free Palestine have said who actually have skin in the game, who've actually uh, had their families and legacies devastated in recent memory. But specifically to explain the quote, broad stroke dualism of the Jew and Arab, what did you mean by that? In terms of our identities, we describe our identities, we describe race itself as though it were scientific, which we know it not to be. And the preponderance of anthropologists in other areas of the scientific community say that to speak on race as though it were a science is ultimately not just wrong, but a murderous enterprise, that the Nazis did that, that the eugenicists who preceded them in the United States did that. The idea that there is a, a Jewish people who did not undergo a lot of intermarriage, that don't come from individual uh, different ethnicities, the idea of blood that is Jewish blood is countered by what we see in reality around us. The idea that there is an Arab people that exists who emerged from the Arab Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, and exists today in faraway Morocco is also not 
true. These are ideas that we construct. The, the idea of blood as it exists and as uh, DNA companies, companies that test your DNA and liken you to people with similar kind of structures of DNA, they've been disproven by a lot of the science community, which has said that we need to look at race, not, not at race as a science, but as ex at experiences with racism as a science so that we can undo all of the harm that this idea of race has suffered upon humanity. The, when, when I say the idea of this dualism between the Jew and the Arab, I'm saying these are two categories that don't exist as people today envision them. That the people who identify as Arab today, they aren't a direct bloodline. People haven't intermarried between the initial Arab invaders in North Africa. The people who left biblical Canaan after the destruction of the Second Temple and moved to North Africa, who are Jewish, who are my ancestors, they didn't only intermarry among themselves. We comprise multitudes. We have all kinds of ancestors that we don't know about. We decide for ourselves who we want to live in tandem with, who exists within our communities and who doesn't. And beyond that decision, I mean, more accurately, we should say, oftentimes politicians decide for us what these given categories mean, who we live in solidarity with and who we live as enemies with, and that that can oftentimes serve to destruct, to dispossess, and to kill. And we've seen that very much in the context of the decolonial movements in North Africa and the Middle East, to include Palestine and Algeria, that there have been efforts, very particular efforts, that you can find actually in policy papers that say, we need these people to stop seeing themselves as XYZ ethnic identity for the purpose of furthering our colonial footprint in XYZ Arab nation. In other words, there's no necessary contradiction between being Jewish and being Arab. Absolutely not, because I am the living example to the contrary. Because I first and foremost identify as an Arab, and I am uh, of Jewish faith. I very much believe in God. I believe in the, the biblical stories not firmly rooted in this reality that do tie me to other people of this faith. I am very much a Jewish Arab person. The people who continue to tell you that I am one or the other are, are people who are bent on promoting fascism, Trumpism, and apartheid in our world. And when we were Arabs, stands to say to all of these people, Khalisna, basically. It's an antidote for Trumpism. The question of Arab identity is at the heart of your book. Arab Jewish identity and as well Arab identity because you have to start somewhere. To answer the puzzle of who might be considered an Arab Jew or consider himself, herself an Arab Jew, first you grapple with the very notion of Arab identity, who's an Arab. And for that you delve into important sources such as the great historian and fellow Tunisian, by the way, Ibn Khaldun, mm -hmm. <laughs> among other sources. Remind our listeners who Ibn Khaldun was and which of his insights you found useful and relevant to your own notions of Arabness or Arabicity. Ibn Khaldun, for me to give a, a kind of introduction to him would be difficult. I mean, he, he was, I believe, the first Arab historian that we know of or that we have records of. I, I don't want to misspeak, but I think that he 
was very much an ethnographer of the region. Much of what he wrote... 13th century. 13th century. Would, much of what he wrote would be considered problematic or xenophobic in our time. But the way that he describes Arabness is sort of a common lived experience. And he describes it as a reaction to rough elements, to weathering rough elements throughout the Arab world from the Gulf to North Africa and the desire to throw off the yoke of oppression. And he says in his writings that, that the Arab people that exist, and I, I don't typically describe the Arab people as the Arab people, I describe it as Nawale Saadawi, the feminist writer, describes it as the Arab peoples, which I think is a more accurate In the plural, yes. In the plural, because there are so many of us who have simultaneous ethnic or religious identities. He describes an Arab people who positively enjoy weathering harsh conditions because those harsh conditions enable us through the instability of them to throw off the yoke of an oppressor. To my mind, that's the most beautiful way of bringing together an ethnic grouping of peoples is not through who my blood father was or what my bloodline is, because I, I, I don't believe in that. I actively disbelieve and advocate against that view of ethnicity and so-called race. What he describes it as is people who reject in a powerful and poetic way. For me, that's my Arabness. For me, the Arabness that I have discussed with different people who I've quoted in this book, for example, one of the most important of them is uh, Siona Sidon, the Moroccan BDS and accountable government activist who remains in Morocco and still advocates for Palestinian liberation and the movement to boycott, divest, and sanction the apartheid against them. He describes the Arab identity as this common lived experience. And he is very kind of particular about phraseology. For example, when I went to him with the interview and I interviewed him electronically because I I couldn't get to Morocco for the purposes of this book, I I think when I started out, I envisioned myself traveling across the Arab world for this book, but there's only so much funding that you can get to do a book. I contacted him and I spoke in French to him, des Juifs Arabes, of Arab Jews. He opposed that phraseology, and that was very interesting to me, because in the phrase that I had used for Arab Jews, it would be a direct translation, Juif Arab, to Arab Jews in English. Jews is the noun, and Arab is an adjective. For him, he wanted to describe himself as an Arab Juif, as a Jewish Arab, Mm. specifically because for him, the Arabness is central. In this life that he lives, He's Arab first. He's an Arab person who belongs more specifically to the corner of the Arab peoples that is the Jewish Arab people. And for me, that's how I identify as well. For me in this life, grounded in this reality where I see people in this reality of flesh and not of spiritual stories, suffering and dispossessed, I stand with them first and foremost. I am Arab first and foremost. So I describe myself in this book and in my interactions with everyone as a Jewish Arab, because Judaism is an adjective for me that modifies the noun that is my Arabness. And this is something that I've learned from, I shouldn't say our ancestors, because Mr. Asidon is still very much a contemporary, and he is very much advocating for the 
liberation of the Arab peoples and beyond the Arab peoples of humanity in Morocco. It's something that I learned from him that to me makes sense. Then the other people who I talked to who informed this idea of what Arabness is, it's people who exist in the history books like Ibn Khaldun, it's academics like Osama B. Mirshid from the Contemporary Arab Studies Department at Georgetown. There are a lot of people out there. It's, it's Alia Moreau, the young feminist Egyptian-British writer who I met through this book. There are a lot of young people, including yourself, Mr. Khalil Bendid, who are asking themselves whether Arabness exists the way that it has existed in the past, what the pan-Arabist movement that preceded my grandparents' generation was seeking to do, uh, and whether it can be pieced together after so many devastations of the diverse Arab peoples in the 20th century, chief among which is the Nakba against the Palestinian people. That's a question that we're coming together to ask ourselves today. That's a conversation that we're having that will inform the future. There are a lot of people asking this question. There is an upcoming, I can't say a lot about it, but there is an Arabist uh, news publication called Inside Arabia that is also working on projects to ask our young and old people what Arab liberation should look like in the future. This is not a single book. This is not a book that endeavors to preserve the Jewish-Arab legacy. First and foremost, this is for all of the Arab peoples to ask themselves, what is Arabness? What are we going to demand of ourselves and the West that we have needed to use to describe ourselves by inverse? What are we going to demand from ourselves and from the people who have devastated us and obliterated our identities and in many cases killed and stolen our homes? or droned us, what are we going to demand of ourselves and other people? How does our identity help in the overarching concern of universal human liberation? How is the movement for Arab liberation of the liberation of the Arab peoples, one that doesn't ignore but that understands and works out the inherent tensions, the inherent bigotry that has existed within our communities, not just to Jewish Arabs, but black Arabs, but people of different communities within our purview. How does that help us relate to other non-Arab communities and support their endeavors for universal human liberation? Because it's very important for us to note that to some people, they feel that it's interesting enough for somebody who is of Jewish faith to say that they're Arab and that it's very interesting that when we have B'nai Mitzvot and weddings and things like that, that we make couscous and dance to Shabi music. To me, that's not so interesting. To me, the fact that we're culturally North African and that we resemble non-Jewish North African people in many ways, to gawk at that is a fundamentally lame, for lack of a better term, enterprise. Me being North African and Arab is absolutely uninteresting if it doesn't aid in the overall grander purpose of halting the devastation and injustices against other peoples in the world. To come back to your point about the bloodline and how obsessively attached to it, not only Jewish communities, but communities everywhere, are and how counterproductive it may be in terms of reconciliation and peace and coexistence. Another 
perfect example of the Arab Jew or the Jewish Arab <laughs> is Raymond Leiris of uh, Constantine in Algeria. He was seen as the perfect bridge, the perfect example. This in the middle of a terrible colonialistic period that was very good and lethal actually in dividing people from one another. He was seen as the perfect incarnation of both an Arab and a Jew. He was a great singer. He was the most popular singer probably in Algeria at the time. Here's the guy. Was he really an Arab? Was he really a Jew? <laughs> was he this? Was he that? In terms of bloodline, he happened to be a little Christian baby who was adopted by a Jewish family. He was abandoned and he was put up for adoption and he grew up Jewish. So, so it couldn't be more Jewish in that way. Couldn't be more Arab. That was his culture and that, that was what he sang. And he was the Arab Jew who was born, quote unquote, Christian, as if, you know, there's no such thing as, thankfully people don't talk about Christian blood so much anymore, but I thought this guy, among many others, was the perfect incarnation of what you're talking about. That's absolutely true. There's a point in the book, and I don't talk about Sheikh Raymond too much, or I don't think that I mentioned his example in the book, but there next door in Tunisia was Habiba Mesika, who I talk about, I, I think because I'm of Tunisian origin and through my grandmother have Tunisianness. Habiba Mesika was arrested on several occasions for having promoted Tunisian independence. I mean, she wasn't arrested for this, but she sang very frequently for Arab liberation from colonialism. In Egypt, there was Abu Nadara Zarka, who was very famous playwright and also a political cartoonist who talked about the concessions that the erstwhile Egyptian government was making to foreign European bidders buying up Egypt left and right. There were a great number of very patriotic, transnationally minded Jewish Arab people who existed just before my grandparents' generation in the lead up to 1948, before the final departure of the vast majority of our communities from the Arab world. Those narratives aren't frequently told for the sake of continuing to dispossess and to weaken and to divide and conquer the Arab peoples. That's journalist and author Mas'ud Hayoun speaking with Khalil Bindib about his new book, When We Were Arabs, A Jewish Family's Forgotten History. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Mas'ud Hayoun. We'll hear more after a break from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. quote your book again, a wonderful book by the title of When We Were Arabs, quote, in large part, I, and that's you, in large part, I identify as Arab because reclaiming my place in a broader Arab world 
I mean, let me reread this. Please. <laughs> in please. large part, I identify as Arabs because reclaiming my place in, in the broader Arab world as an aspirational Arab world in solidarity with itself scares our foes who have for so long taught us to fight against ourselves. I am an Arab because that is the legacy I inherit from Deida and Oscar. Those are your grandparents. It is how they remain for me immortal. My Arabness is cultural. It is African. My Arabness is Jewish. It is also retaliatory. I am Arab because it is what I and my parents have been told not to be for generations to stop us from living in solidarity with other Arabs. And then you say, my instinct is to refute unequivocally the suggestion that I am of the past, a stillborn. And finally, like my ancestors, for as long as my family can remember, I am Arab of Jewish faith. I am not a Sephardi or Mizrahi. Those are two fairly recent but popular polite society terms for what I am. Explain briefly to us this important distinction. You don't consider yourself Sephardi or Mizrahi. What is the difference? I very much also wanted to come to the first point in the first quote, but I'll speak on Sephardi and Mizrahi first. Sephardi and Mizrahi are terms that are used, as I describe them in the book, to kind of whitewash over the Jewish North African and Middle Eastern legacies. Sephardi in Hebrew means Spanish. It essentially seeks to move my ancestry to north of the Mediterranean. Though my family has no knowledge of us ever having been from Spain. There are Jewish North African families who have Spanish language or Italian language or Portuguese language last names, who have family artifacts like ketubot, that means marriage contracts, that show that their ancestors were among the refugees who ended up in North Africa after the Spanish Inquisition or amid the Spanish Inquisition. But those were communities that were very distinct in North African history from the indigenous North African communities. Those communities, it's also important to note, are from an era in Spain, the golden era of Spain, so-called, where they were originally from North Africa. These were the so-called Moors that people talk about in history. So even the Sefaldim, when we talk about the so-called Spanish Jews, have their roots in North Africa. And yet we call them Spanish to Europeanize these Jewish communities. It so happened that under the Ottoman Empire, there were more Sephardi communities at the helm in Istanbul who were given dominion over their indigenous counterparts within the context of the Jewish communities that existed throughout the Middle East and North Africa. This is part of the way that the term Sephardi became a catch-all phrase for any non-European Jewish community that effectively attempted to argue away their indigeneity. Mizrahi is a term that is more recent in Hebrew that comes from a liberal place within Israeli academia to describe communities that aren't accurately described by the term Sephardi as Eastern. Mizrahi means Oriental. Mashrak, yeah. from the East, from the ah, East. So mm. these people who are describing us as Oriental are wrong for the same reasons that we don't describe Asian or any Asian people or any people from the roots in continental Asia as Oriental anymore. 
And the reason why we don't describe these peoples who range from the, the Eastern Mediterranean to East Asia as Oriental anymore is because that is a fundamentally white supremacist Eurocentric view of the world. The map as drawn by Europe places us in the East. It's ridiculous to call somebody who's from the north of his continent, from North Africa, an Eastern person. So I will not accept when anyone calls me Sefaldion Mizrahi, as I won't accept in English or in any language to be called Spanish or Eastern, because those simply do not make sense. It shouldn't make sense to anyone that Hong Kong, at least until fairly recently, was considered to be a very Western part of Asia, and it exists to the south of Beijing. Just it shouldn't make sense to anyone that North Africa exists to the south of Europe and to the north of sub-Saharan Africa, and yet we're somehow from the east. We live in a contorted world where there are only Jews or Arabs, and where people from the north of some place actually come from the east of some place. And that is part of the many rejections of this book. In the same way that Nawale Saadawi, who is, and I recently wrote an article about her for Inside Arabia, how Nawale Saadawi was a very important, uh, or is an important octogenarian feminist socialist Arabist from Egypt, who wrote books and plays and novels, short novels that really cut to the point, that are fundamentally rejections of these contortions from outside of our societies that are used to oppress us and from within. And that is precisely what I do here. I don't live on a map drawn by European people. I reject that map because that map, like all of these maps, have been drawn by people who continue to obliterate where we come from. And to the first quote that you shared with us, and thank you so much for doing so, I should say, at the same time as saying that my Arabness is only significant insofar as it aids in the grander project of human universal liberation, it is not political solely. And it's important to know that. I was raised by two people who happened to be my grandparents, and so I lost them too early, and that devastated me in many ways. And of course, psychology is so much a part of this book, so talking about that pain is part of the project of when we were Arabs. When I meet someone, and it doesn't even need to be a North African person, it can be somebody from Amman, it can be somebody from the Emirates, it can be the people from all over our Arab world. It recalls to me who my dead parents were. I feel that they aren't dead because everything about the people from those places even though we are so different, even though we look different, even though our foods are different, there's a grain of something that exists between us that reminds me of the people who raised me. And to me, that's a powerful enterprise psychologically. And when you say the term Arab world, I know from reading your book that it's not an exclusivist, it's not an exclusive belonging. When you talk about Arab Jews, you're also often talking about Berber Jews, mm -hmm. and there's no mutual exclusion between being a Berber and an Arab either. The French were very good French colonialists at dividing in order to conquer not just Jewish from Arab brothers, but also Berber speakers from Berber speakers. 
every, every opportunity to divide was a good one. One central tenet of your book and one central rejection, as you call them, is this idea of single identities, that you're either or. You cannot be more than one thing at a time. Something I experienced myself in my own Muslim family in, in Algeria. It was funny to see some of my uncles go into these complicated acrobatics, mental acrobatics, to prove that they were 100% Arab when, you know, they're blonde and blue-eyed. They say, uncle, mm -hmm. where does that come from? He says, that's what Arabs look like, period, end of story. Yes. So this, <laughs> this idea that is so cherished by everyone, every community, that we are bloodline. We come all the way from Mecca, or all the way from Jerusalem, or all the way from somewhere, without any interruption, without any interference, without any impurity, yeah. it's toxic. And yet it is accepted by 99% of the people, as far as I'm concerned, even educated people. It's a huge obstacle in trying to reconcile and come to, to a better, less antagonistic world. We see it here in this country. You take Barack Obama, for example. Is he African? Or is he European? Nobody asks that question. It seems a silly question in this context. And yet, why can he not be considered both at the same time? Isn't he half and half? Among many, many illustrations of the same idea. I was happy that you also touched on this, this artificial, colonialistically infused and encouraged idea that somehow Berbers and Arabs are antithetical the Berbers are more like us, quote-unquote, more French, more European, versus the Arabs, who are a different sort. They're violent. They come from the Orient, as you were saying. To quote you again, you say, this book is intended to breathe life into my grandparents and to avenge their lives, which multiple incarnations of imperialist white supremacy truncated and warped to political ends at so many turns. What are some of those, those turns historically? Give us a summary of these turns that happened to your own family, to your grandparents, how they were uprooted, how they had to leave their own country. First of all, the phrasing of that quote, and this isn't to argue against myself, is, is not to discount the fact that my own family bears blame in having been co-opted by that white supremacist colonialist project and having fed it in several ways. North Africa, in terms of its role in the global slave trade, needs to come to terms with anti-blackness. My family needs to come to terms with the way that their identity as people of Jewish faith, as Jewish people, was warped to devastate the Palestinian people. At various junctures, my family fed into projects that also had the ultimate effect of dispossessing them, of obliterating any sense of self, and of turning us into what I describe, as you've said later on, as stillborns, as people who only existed in people's kind of nostalgia about the past, in the nostalgia of your parents' generation about a past that is no longer true of Algeria, for instance. So those white supremacist projects if I were to speak uh, specifically to them, began uh, very particularly with French dignitaries who came at the onset of colonialism against the Algerian peoples, who decided that not just the Jewish Algerians, but several different groups of Algerian people, to include women, oftentimes 
the French occupiers brandished progressivism, brandished the so-called, although totally hollow and half-hearted, defense of ethnic minorities and of women within the Algerian context. These dignitaries decided that we would be Europeanized to a degree. By we, I say Jewish Algerians, but does that we exist? I'm not exactly sure, because later on, as you note, there would be the Clemieux decree, which would make Jewish Algerian people, which my family was not, French citizens, where Tunisian Jewish communities and Moroccan Jewish communities on either side of Algeria were not granted French citizenship. And this had the very particular objective of making the Jewish Algerian circumstance different from the Jewish Tunisian circumstance and different from the Jewish Moroccan circumstance. So while we're talking about the way that colonialism and white supremacy divided and conquered within Algeria and within Tunisia and within Morocco, it's very important to note that the divide and conquer politic on the part of the French occupiers also divided the Jewish Algerians from the Jewish Tunisians and the Jewish Moroccans. It was impossible for people across our region to find common cause with each other, particularly because their legal status was very different. And this isn't to say that what's going on with Palestinians is similar, but we see that Palestinians today in, in occupied Palestine are also divided along similar uh, arbitrary kind of legal distinctions that make it very difficult for somebody from Gaza to find common cause, for example, with a Palestinian citizen of the state of Israel. So when I talk about the way that at various moments, white supremacist, colonialist agendas contorted my family, I'm speaking very particularly about policy documents that I found in my research for this book that were written by dignitaries of the French state that said very particularly, Jewish Algerian people will, after a few generations, de-Arabize, de-indigenize themselves to a certain degree where they'll no longer see themselves as Algerian, but rather see themselves as a go-between group between the French and the larger indigenous population of North Africa. Their language that they use is very muddy, the way that they describe Jewish Algerian people. They describe Jewish Algerian people as indigenous Israelites, as indigenous people who they say themselves, they don't know exactly where they came from in the purest sense, but that doesn't matter. They need to be North African, be Algerian, and wear European dress and affect European mannerisms for the sake of colonizing the entirety of North Africa, for showing the rest of indigenous people in Algeria what the future looks like. And then from there, from the Jewish Algerian circumstance, they extrapolate to the rest of the Arab world because that policy document came from a time when France was jockeying with Britain for ownership of large swaths of the Arab world. In Egypt, at the same time, they were jockeying with Britain for what would become a British protectorate. And this double whammy of colonialism happened in Algeria. First, the French colonialism, which as you just described, separated Jewish natives from the other natives. But then second, second wave came in 1948 with Zionism, which also 
sought to teach the same thing to indigenous Jews in North Africa, that they were not really from North Africa, they're really from somewhere else. They belonged in Israel, like all Jews belonged in Israel. As if one wave was not enough, and there was still substantial numbers of Jewish Algerians who still identify as, Jew as Algerian as well as Jewish, and who fought on the side of the independence for the independence of their country from France, as if that wedge was not enough. On top of that came Zionism to, again, remind Algerian Jews that they're not truly Algerian, that they're from somewhere, somewhere else. And that's sort of, I'm hoping not definitively, but certainly was the death knell for the Jewish Algerian community in 1961, when they left en masse right before Algerian independence. Exactly. I think that one of the important points of when we were Arabs is oftentimes these two waves, the initial occupation of Algeria and then the Nakba against the Palestinian people that furthered our dispossession from our homelands as Jewish Arab peoples, that these are two separate movements that what happened on one part was a French colonial movement, and then the subsequent one was promoted by kind of a Jewish European movement centered in Germany that was very antagonistic to the French colonial movement. But in reality, one nourished the other. It would have been impossible to divorce us so immediately from our home societies uh, since time immemorial, had it not been for the dignitaries that I just described to you, setting up schools to inculcate the upper crust of our communities with the idea that they were not, in fact, part of their homelands, that they belonged somewhere far away that was described to them in their holy books. Uh, and uh, one would not have existed without the other. That is one of the points that I hoped to drive home with this book is that one colonial project very much nourished the other. And that just because one came from France and one came from Germany shouldn't distract from the fact that they nourished each other ultimately. And that they ultimately had the same effect of dividing and conquering and dispossessing and killing. And the great irony to me is to observe how anti-Semitism and hatred of the Jewish community did not contradict this alliance between fascism and Zionism. When you that see what we true. see absolutely. it today here in this country between the Trumpites and the far-right Zionists, or the Zionist period in many instances, and we see it back in Algeria in the War of Independence when the two merged first under Pétain during World War II when wholesale massacres and genocide of Jewish Ashkenazi people were happening, and sympathies within the colonialist community. One, 10% of, of the population was PNR, the settlers, settler colonialists. Colonialists did not include the Jews, but the French citizens in Algeria included the Jews. But it didn't keep the non-Jews, the European settlers, from hating the Jews. Even though, even though they were ostensible allies, when Pétain decreed that Jews were no longer French and that they no longer had the right to certain jobs and certain privileges, 
like the Muslims didn't. The overwhelming majority of their fellow PNOR just rejoiced. They were happy <laughs> that, that the Jews were put back in their place. And yet there was this ostensible alliance between the colonialists and supposedly the Jewish community. For me, there's no better illustration of the cynicism of the Clémieux decree, of the lack of genuine movement toward progressivism that people were brainwashed into thinking existed, that taught them that France was the center of civilization, than the World War II era dissolution of their French citizenship. It's the perfect example of how cynical, how opportunistic, the French imperialist co-optation of the Jewish Algerian communities was. As a Tunisian Jew, to just jump now 60 or 70 years forward, mm -hmm. as a Tunisian Jew, or partly Tunisian Jew, you probably recall in 2015, after the tragic Charlie Hebdo and kosher market atrocities in Paris, mm -hmm. that one victim was a young Tunisian Jew, I forget his name. Who you was have a, Yes, exactly. exactly, who was a worker in the kosher store. And I was stunned and frankly delighted to realize that his poor father, who still spoke Arabic as his first and only language, really, when he was interviewed by French TV uh, after the, the massacre, after the murder of his son, he was really struggling to speak French. Mm -hmm. which I felt was a time warp. I didn't know there were still Tunisian Jews who were so deeply immersed in their Tunisianness mm -hmm. that they hardly, this guy certainly hardly spoke any Arabic, anything else in Arabic and perhaps Judeo-Arabic. I don't know if he spoke Hebrew, but certainly, and you write movingly in your book, when we were Arabs, of the mystical bond you still feel as a, an American who's born in this country for an ancestral land that you didn't grow up in. If I may quote you one more time, one quote that touched me, you say in classic, this is about the time your grandmother Daida died and you were there and you were grieving. You say in classical mythology, spilled blood can give rise to flowers. Where a Tunisian died in far-flung Los Angeles, Jasmine sprang from the dirt. And then you go on to say, in my grandmother's time and across the Arab world since then, Tunisia was and is and will remain Tunis al-Khadra, mm -hmm. in Arabic meaning Tunisia the green, for its verdant valleys, a place my grandmother saw when she closed her eyes that last time, a place to which my soul will return someday when we reunite. Very moving. Do you still have the similar longings as somebody who was born in this country, far away from Tunisia? <laughs> mm -hmm. Because Tunisia, thankfully, has a long way to go for gender parity, like in the West, but still is a step ahead of many Eastern and so-called Eastern and Western countries. I'm lucky to have uh, Tunisianness through my grandmother, obviously, whether you receive your citizenship through a woman or not is a question in much of the Arab world. I very much see myself as a member of the Tunisian state. After four years of the Trump administration kind of teased out how even previous neoliberal administrations were a facade, I very much want to end up back in Tunisia. My plan is not to stay in the United States. I, I'll stay here at the helm of world hegemony as long as I need to 
to be useful to this place, but I hope to God that I end up back in Tunisia. That ground, for many reasons that are particular to our Jewish faith, is sacred ground. The Ghriba synagogue in Jerba is a center of Jewish Tunisianness. That's why you see many religious people never take the French citizenship, even if they live in France, is because that's the center of our religious observance. And beyond that, there are sacred things that live in that ground. When I go back to North Africa, when I go in particular to Tunisia, it's the same thing that I was describing to you earlier. I can meet someone in a supermarket who will look like Daida's mother or who looks like Daida. And maybe that person is Muslim. Maybe that person doesn't believe in anything. But ultimately, my allegiance is to her above anyone else, that person. That ground, that dirt is whether or not my most distant ancestors are actually rooted in Tunisia, which is insignificant, immaterial to me. That's the dirt that makes my body. It's the dirt that I owe my body to when I die. To come back to your grandparents' story, through which we see all these different phenomena just through their short lives, we see so much happening in North Africa. And one moving passage of your book, When We Were Arabs, you write, quote, Oscar could have lived a marvelous life if only he had stayed, if only he had been left alone by the Zionist project and allowed to stay. The Hayuns had left Morocco but remained within the boundaries of the Arab world in Egypt. And the abroad that Oscar had imagined before 1948 was in Beirut, within their world. The Arab world was being made impossible to him and to so many others. Explain to us how being so close to Palestine, being Jewish, his journey actually led him all the way to the USA instead. The imagination of what would have happened if 1948 wouldn't have happened is something that is both interesting to me as a kind of a philosophical concept and heartbreaking to me. And I end up saying the same of my grandmother, that neither of them envisioned themselves before 1948 leaving their countries. Oscar had traveled a little bit more than Daida. For Daida, the idea that she would ever go to Algeria, not very far from Tunis, or that she would ever go to neighboring Libya was out of the question to her. It was, it was mind-boggling to her that she would ever leave. And these people ended up leaving not just once, but several times over they were displaced. So the idea here is that politics displaced these people, that politics dispossessed these people because... They hadn't envisioned that they multiple times over would be asked to pick up and leave the Arab world. The abroad that they envisioned was still within the purview of the Arab world. Oscar dreamed of going to another country, but never a non-Arab country. That was unthinkable to him until it became the case that he had no other choice. Masoud Hayoun is the author of When We Were Arabs, A Jewish Family's Forgotten History. Please join us next time for the second part of this interview. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <laughs>
Le monde n'est ni mauvais ni bon que ton parent C'est sans raison oh, 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 oh. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Whoa, 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 whoa.